I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The biopharmaceutical industry has long been considered immune to the threat of patent trolls, patent holders who seek to monetize the value of a patent through enforcement rather than productive use. But a paper by UC Hastings' Robin Feldman and Harvard fellow Nicholson Price argues that the biopharmaceutical industry should be worried and that steps should be taken now to counter the threat before it blossoms into an industry-wide problem. We spoke to Feldman professor of law and director of the Institute for Innovation Law at the UC Hastings College of Law, about the study, why the biopharmaceutical industry should be concerned, and what steps can be taken to deter abusive behavior while protecting innovation. Robin, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. A few years back when patent reform legislation was being negotiated, the America Vents Act, the high-tech industry and the biotech industry were at odds. The high-tech industry, which has rapid development cycles, was concerned about the freedom to operate, where the biotech and pharma industries, which have long and costly development cycles, were concerned about protecting the strength of patents. Part of the issue had to do with vulnerability to so-called patent trolls, or non-practicing entities, people who seek to monetize the value of a patent through enforcement as opposed to productive use. Perhaps we can begin with the phenomena of patent trolling itself. What is patent trolling and and what are the consequences? Who does it harm? Well, patent trolling, although more more neutrally known as non-practicing entity behavior, uh, is a business model in which entities uh, buy up and aggregate patents and launch them against companies that make products. It frequently exploits the costs and risks of the litigation system to extract settlements, regardless of whether the patent is valid or whether it is targeted at a company that's actually infringing the patent. It's caused considerable amount of pain in the high-tech industry, has spread to retail uh, and -and mom-and-pop sectors, and there are signs that it's moving into the life sciences as well. So this is a growth industry, according to the numbers. It, it makes up an increasing share of those patent holders that are asserting, asserting their patent rights. Can you explain that? Can you give us a sense of how big a problem this is becoming? Of course. So the amount of activity by NPEs has exploded in recent years. In 2007, uh, about... of the patent lawsuits filed in this country were filed by non-practicing entities. By 2012, that number had reached more than half the patent lawsuits. And all of the, the rapid increase in the number of patent lawsuits overall is attributable to non-practicing entities. There are a variety of studies that look at the data in different ways, slice and dice it, but Across all of them, one thing is clear, and that is that this 
non-practicing entity train is barreling down the tracks. So this has traditionally been seen as a, a problem for the high-tech industry. Biopharma hasn't been terribly concerned. Why is that? Well, conventionalism holds that bio and pharma are safe from, from patent trolls. And there is certainly a good deal of truth in that. Life science research requires a greater investment of time and money and expertise, so it's harder to come up with a patent in life sciences in your garage. It results in fewer patents, fewer companies to target, a longer lead time for products to emerge, so more time for people to figure out where the problem patents are. Biotech and pharma products also tend to have fewer components, and patents in the field tend to be narrower than technology patents. Uh, but that's not the whole story, and I believe that that conventional wisdom has left people feeling overly optimistic. I'm doing my best to sound a warning bell. You certainly challenge the conventional wisdom about the threat of patent trolling represents and sound an alarm the hopes action will be taken. Part of the reasoning here is that there are large patent portfolios held by universities that could be exploited by patent monetizers. Universities are, are not generally are generally not considered non-practicing entities, but they are large patent holders. Do, do they generally seek to monetize their patents through challenging biopharma companies? So having studied um, all of the lawsuits that have been filed, patent lawsuits that have been filed, um, I can see that universities themselves tend to file a very small percentage of the lawsuits. I don't think of them as traditional non-practicing entities because, to me, non-practicing entities are those whose core activity is licensing and litigating patents. That's certainly not the university's core activity. However, um, the concern is that the vast pools of patents held by universities could end up transferred into the hands of traditional non-practicing entities. The Association of University Technology Managers had a policy against selling to NPEs, and they've been revisiting that policy. So to try to understand how much of a problem that might be, my co-author and I looked at whether universities might provide uh, an attractive pool of ammunition for NPEs to launch against current products in the bio and pharmaceutical space. So here's what we did. We, we skimmed the patent holdings for five major research universities, the University of California system, the University of Texas system, MIT, Caltech, and the University of South Florida. We identified dozens of patents that could be deployed against bio and pharmaceutical products that currently exist, following the types of patterns that NPEs have used against other types of industries. And these include things like patents on drug formulas, on methods of treatment, on methods doing research, on methods of dosing, and, and many others. It's the type of broad patents that have the potential to be wielded widely. In other words, if NPEs get serious about buying from universities or if universities are serious about teaming with NPEs, uh, there could be a significant pool of ammunition for NPEs to launch against current products. I mean, there are also signs that, that this has already begun. Uh, so one of the largest aggregators holds patents for purifying nucleic acids 
in its portfolio, one of the basic building blocks of science in this area. Uh, another notorious patent monetization entity describes its platform as equally effective for patents in all scientific and technology fields. And patent brokers are beginning to report hearing from major pharma companies interested in shopping their non-core patents to monetize this. A variety of other signs showing that uh, patent trolling in, is beginning to slowly move into the life science area. Well, you highlight in the paper three weaknesses in the thinking that biopharma is not threatened by patent trolling. I'd like you to walk us through those three, starting with regulatory barriers to what's known as inventing around. Can you explain that? Of course. So part of what makes the patent trolling model uh, so attractive relates to the amount of pain they can threaten to impose on a company. Companies may be willing to pay, even if the claim isn't very good, uh, if the costs and risks of fighting it are too high. Pharma and um, the life sciences area are very much at risk in those areas. So, for example, if I am a pharmaceutical company that has spent an extraordinary amount of money um, developing my product, and I am on the eve of getting FDA approval, that is a very significant pain moment for me difficult to invent around uh, after I've gone through all of those stages. Uh, thus, I would make a very vulnerable target for a non-practicing entity who wanted to throw one, ten, or fifty patents in my direction. There's also the assumption of what you call classical patent bargaining in suits. Can you explain that? Sure. And so, part of the conventional wisdom that bio and pharma are safe um, rest on the notion of, of whether patents are valid, how the parties bargain along the way. Um, this is not the model that has unfolded in the patent trolling arena. Uh, it, it is less a question of whether a patent is valid, less a question of whether the target is actually infringing and more a question of what the cost will be to fight off this particular um, type of behavior. And so um, those who have lived through the patent trolling business model in the technology field uh, have come to understand that it's less about the validity of the patent, less about what the patent actually is, and more about the business model. Many people who have looked at um, bio and pharma and made the assumption that it's not a very attractive area for patent trolling have made this on the assumption that there's so much, uh, that targeting is much better in the technology field. And I think that's valid. But what one often sees in the development of markets is that as the primary market becomes saturated, players in the field start to look for new markets. So, Bio and pharma may not be as attractive as technology, but as more people flood into this business model and begin to look for targets, they will look for targets that are perhaps not as perfectly attractive, but still attractive enough. Finally, there's the assumption that patent trolls will only go after the best and most lucrative markets. What's faulty in that thinking? One of the things we have seen in the development of the patent trolling business model is the variation on that model across time. So there were initial 
large players in the field who were very quiet and secretive about their activity stayed under the radar for a long time. As more people became aware of the activity and saw it as a way to enter the market, you also see varieties on the basic business model. So an analysis that's based on what early patent trolling looks like misses the different varieties that are developing across time and the types of threats that can happen as the business model expands and develops variations. What should be done? How do you deter abusive behavior while protecting innovation? Protecting innovation is tremendously important. I, I do believe that a strong patent system is critical for innovation in all industries, biofarm as well as high technology. Um, however, the patent trolling behavior is based on exploiting weaknesses in the patent system, particularly in the patent litigation system, but others as well. So it's important to try to uh, tighten the spaces that allow parties to engage in strategic behavior and bargain for value far above whatever rights that they have. I also think that it's important to think at this point about the role that universities might play. Uh, life science trolling is, is in its infancy and it's predictable. So we're thinking about it while there's, there's still time. Universities in particular have important responsibilities to society, including keepers of the academic claim and recipients of federal money. Many university patents are developed in part with federal funds. So there are serious concerns when government-funded inventions end up as patent troll lawsuits, um, particularly if what economists are suggesting is accurate, and that is that very little of the money changing hands as part of these lawsuits is actually getting back to any of the original uh, any of the original inventors. My point is simply that dancing with uh, patent trolls could be a risky business for universities. If public anger focuses on universities, I believe they have much more to lose in terms of federal dollars than they have to gain from uh, NPEs. Robin Feldman, Professor of Law and Director of the Institute for Innovation Law at the UC Hastings College of Law. Robin, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.